This week, y'all, we got back from Israel a week ago yesterday. And uh, this week, I, Thursday, Friday, uh, and Saturday, I was in Colorado working with one of our kingdom partner churches. So I'm like, I don't know what time I'm in. I have no idea. My body doesn't know. My brain doesn't know. I'm tired. But I saw something happen this week with this church in Colorado that I've been, work, I've been working with. Arturo Vargas is the pastor there that's completely Spanish-speaking. Uh, they reach people who are first-generation or second-generation, new to the United States, immigrants, all Spanish-speaking. And um, they've been devastated by disunity. And he asked me to come and to be with them. And, you know, this is one of those trips that you, you just go because you're supposed to. Y'all got that? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to. I didn't have the energy. But I watch God heal a church. I have no idea what happened because they were all in Spanish, but I saw God <laughs> heal a church. And I want to say this, because we made a decision as a church to be a teaching and resourcing church, your ministry is affecting people in Colorado, in California, in Colombia, in Costa Rica, in Nicaragua, in Cuba, in Hamptons, New York, in Africa. I could go on and on and on. Why? Because this little church in the heart of the hill country, Texas, has a big old God, and in his eyes, we ain't no little church. We're his church, and we live all for Jesus. It's exciting. I get, I get chill bumps watching what God does. Now, we're in this series on Acts. Did y'all know we're in Acts? And we, three of you did. That's awesome. The rest of you, we're in a series on Acts. And we came up to chapter five in Acts. And I decided when I was writing through, planning this out last November, I said, God, we're going to preach on Ananias and Sapphira. Really? I don't think I want to do that. And the Lord said, suck it up, buttercup. You're going to talk about it. So as I was writing this talk, I, I remember I was eight. I was eight years old. I was in third grade. I was in Mrs. Gardner's third grade class. And she put up with zero monkey business. And I was the monkey most of the time. I mean, she was loving. She was good. She was awesome. Um, but she was a great teacher. But she was strict. And uh, I was an aggressive little boy. I know it's hard to imagine. A little outgoing, extroverted. A leader, emerging leader. That's what I like to call it. And some boys started fighting around me. We were in line to go someplace. And these boys started fighting around me. So being the pastor's heart, I was going to intervene and just, you know, stand in and keep these boys to behave when I felt the strong right hand of Miss Gardner seize me around the nap of my neck, snatch me up and present me before the powers that be, which were Principal Rhodes. I said to him, Principal, I was being a minister of peace. I was trying to divide the, the divisive. I was trying to heal the wounds. I was trying to bring brothers together in the bond of unity. And I met the Board of Education that day. <laughs> and then I had a decision I had to make. See, the problem with getting whooping at school is that my parents had a, a position. If you got whooped at school, guess what happened at home? You got whooped again. And here's the bigger problem. I went to this elementary school, Valparaiso Elementary School. My dad was principal of Edge Elementary School. And Mr. Rhodes and my father were friends. But I, did not, I decided not to tell my dad that I'd gotten a whooping at school because I didn't want to get it again. I was unjustly punished. I didn't want to tell him, so I didn't tell him. Two weeks went by, and I thought, I am in the clear until they had their monthly principals meeting. And Mr. Rhodes told my daddy what had happened 
and about him administering the Board of Education. And as I arrived home that afternoon, my father met me and I got it again. This is what my daddy said, son, I believe you were trying to break up a fight. I believe that you were trying to do the right thing. But the problem was, is that you deceived me. Had you told me right up, I probably would not have executed my right as a parent to correct you, not through your ears, but through your rear. And he, he disciplined me. My dad did so in love, but he disciplined me. Why? Because my dad was concerned about my character. He wanted to, be, to grow up to be a man that was authentic and transparent and one who promoted unity, not one that would live in deception. And it's not pleasant. Discipline is not pleasant, is it, y'all? Okay, good. That's a good answer. So y'all, I don't know. Yeah. I never liked disciplining my children. Never. And I sure ain't going to discipline my grandchildren. I'm Papa. Papa don't discipline. Papa don't whoop nobody. Papa, all he is, is is money, ice cream, and love. That's all Papa is. But this is what the writer of Hebrews said. It is for discipline that you have, you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children, not sons. Beside this, we have earthly fathers who discipline us and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time and it seems best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Holiness. If you look on the walls here, holiness is one of our values. What does that mean? Does that mean perfection? No, no, no. It means set apart for God. And God disciplines us that we might be set apart for him, that we might be like him, be holy even as I am holy, says the Lord. He's to set us apart. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields, get this, a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. One translation says, a harvest of righteousness, an abundance of righteousness by those who have been trained by this. You see, this experience was helpful to me. It was hurtful, but it was, it was helpful. I know my father wanted the best for me, and so he displayed that over and over and over again. When I was little, he displayed it through physical punishment. Never beaten. I was never beaten. I was never maligned, never abused. My father was very careful with the words he chose. Later, he would discipline me with his voice. Later, he would instruct me with his coaching. I would give anything to have a conversation with my daddy again. His wisdom, his truth, his understanding, his discipline. Now, with all that said, God is what's the same with you and me. He's not an ogre who's waiting to slap us down. He's a loving father who wants to guide us and to mold us and so that we could become like him. Here in Acts 5, we see the early church emerging and God is moving in such power. Flavius Josephus, the, the Roman historian who wrote the history of the Jews, he said that the church had filled Jerusalem to the place where poverty was eradicated. 
that hundreds of thousands of people had come to Christ and this new wave of understanding of grace and truth and freedom, free from the yoke and the bondage of religion, welcoming to all. It literally swept the Roman Empire. And within 300 years, it was the, the national faith of Rome. Wow. Because God was working. But in the middle of God working, Satan was working as well. Here in Acts 5, you find two people. It seems to be straightforward. Two people lied to God. God killed them. That's troubling to me. That's troubling to me. And what is this all about? Well, let, let this passage, let's let this passage help us understand divine discipline and how God moves and, and its purpose and how God wants to shape us. Why? Listen, this is the phrase I want you to remember. God loves you too much to leave you alone. To leave you alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you want to say to us today. And I pray that you'll speak through me, that it'll not be my words or my thoughts or my opinion, but your truth that leads us to life and peace and comfort in the Holy Spirit. And I thank you for how good you are. And I thank you for how you're moving. And I pray that you'll just do what you'll do. And I pray this in your strong name. Amen. Amen. Now I invite you to go ahead and take out your notes. You want to jot down some things today. Remember our online resources that are available at FBCW, FBC Wimberley, excuse me, FBCWimberley.com. We have readings through the book of Acts. We have Acts journals that are available at the Resource Center, and we have uh, video teachings. In fact, if you go to Right Now Media uh, on our webpage, you can click on Right Now Media and send us an email. We'll sign you up to a free subscription to that. We have our own channel, and on that, I have over 60 leadership videos on Right Now Media that you could tune in and watch, and it'll help you not only uh, in your life with leading your group or your life leading your business or your life leading yourself, because self-leadership probably is the most important leadership. But let's think together about this. Here's the first thing I want you to hold from this passage. I'm going to back up, actually, to chapter 4 and start there. Unity reflects the heart of God. Unity reflects the heart of God. God wants us to be in unity. Why? Because God's in unity. The Lord our God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He lives as three in one in the perfect balance of unity, and he wants us to be in unity. He wants our family to be in unity. Now, let me read for you Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The full number, they were all in unity. Now, you're saying, well, that wasn't hard. There's probably only 10 or 12 of them. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. There were over 8,000 of them at this time. Over 8,000. Church in unity. Church with power. Just imagine there's about 800 people attend here every weekend. What if we were all in unity, one heart and one soul? By the middle of next week, there'd be 1,600. By the middle of the next week, it'll be 3,200. By the middle of the next week, y'all see where I'm going? Now, listen, it is none of our business how big the church is. Y'all get that? None of our business. It is our business how healthy the church is. Y'all got that? I never go to the doctor where he celebrates my size. He'd go, my, you've gotten bigger since last I've seen you. Congratulations. No. He celebrates my health. And he wants me to be healthy and he wants us to be healthy. Now, the full number of believers were in one heart and soul. And no one said that any of their things belonged to them as his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace, great grace was given to them all. Great grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. Grace was given. In other words, you need grace and I need grace. And this church was giving grace in abundance to one another. You know what grace means? 
putting up with your craziness. Do y'all need grace? Oh, yeah, you do. Do I need grace? <laughs> there was an enthusiastic yes from one of our leaders. Yes. Hallelujah. Give him grace. Well, you're thinking, well, I don't know anybody in my life that needs grace. It's you. You need the grace. And so great grace was given to all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who's also called uh, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite. That means he was from the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe of the Jewish people. A native of Cyprus. He did not live in Israel. He lived on the island of Cyprus. He was in Jerusalem. He went there for the festival of Pentecost. He was there. He heard the gospel, probably responded at the temple when, uh, when 3,000 got saved. Barnabas was probably one of them. Probably one of them. Was moved by God, elevated by God because of his great spirit and trust in the Lord. And he sold a field that belonged to him. He brought the money he laid at the apostles' feet. What he did is he set an example. The son of encouragement set an example for he encouraged other believers. The church was experiencing a movement of God that included unity of one heart and one soul. God loves a church in unity. This weekend, well, actually this week, as I watched this church be healed from disunity. I want to tell you something. This is how it started. About three years ago, there were a church of over 600. 2%. 2% of their congregation became negative and critical of their pastor. It started influencing others. It started influencing others. It started influencing others. And they went from over 600 to 300. Because they allowed disunity. And here's the deal. They didn't know how to stop it. And with simple instruction and simple encouragement and simple coaching, they gathered the tools, they redreamed the dream. And I would say in the next two years, this church in Colorado reaching Spanish speakers will be over a thousand. That's just my prophecy. Now I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, so don't hold me to it. But unity, God loves it. And God explodes when there's unity. There's in unity. The church I pastored in Canada, we experienced tremendous disunity. We had to make a very difficult decision. We made that decision and to remove disunity. And within two months, two months, our congregation grew by a thousand people. That's crazy, isn't it? Because God loves unity. Listen to what the psalm says. Psalmist says. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard and on the beard of Aaron, Aaron the high priest, running down on the collar of his robes, which represented the presence of God. It's like the dew of Hermon, which is the highest peak in Israel, which falls on the mountain of Zion, which is where the temple was, the, the Mount Zion or Mount Moriah. For the Lord has commanded the blessing life evermore. God loves together to be together in unity. And I'll tell you where we'll be in perfect unity. Y'all ready for this? When we get to heaven. Until that time, I will have to give you grace. And you have to give me grace. But until that time, it's our job 
to maintain unity. This church, they were connecting, they were growing, they were serving, they were sharing, they were honoring God with their lives. They were being a fully functional New Testament church because they were the New Testament church. And beloved, we at First Baptist Church, Wimberley, Texas, are a fully functioning New Testament church where we connect, we grow, we serve, we share, we honor God as a lifestyle. This is who we are. And we do it together in unity. And they were committed, and we have to be committed to four basic foundations. Let me tell you what they are. The four basic foundations we have to be committed to to, in order to be in unity. We have to first be committed to doctrinal purity. God's word, period. Nothing added. We cannot take cultural changes and shape it to theological truth. Cultural changes have to be measured by theological truth. We will not compromise God's word in order to cater to culture. Are y'all with me? And that we are going to hold to the authority of scripture. God's word is our guide. Why are we Baptist? Because we don't smoke, drink, dance, or chew, or go with women who do? Y'all know better than that. That ain't true. We don't drink in front of each other. And we don't dance because we look like we need to be wormed when we do. No, we're Baptists because we hold a scripture. The Bible's our authority. We are not a denomination, people. We are a movement of God. Denominational labels, when you die, they fall off. They either fall off when you go up or they burn off when you go down. They don't matter. Somebody asked me the other day, what would you be if you weren't a Baptist? I said, I'd be ashamed. (laughs) Actually, I'm I'm kidding about that because I hold credentials in two other denominations because denominations don't matter. God's word matters. God's word matters. Philosophical unity. What does that mean? A way of disciple making. We have the unity of connecting, growing, serving, and sharing. That is our disciple making process. Why? Because it's the great commandment, the great commission. It's Acts chapter two. It's Ephesians chapter four. It's Colossians chapter three. It's John 17. It's those things. It's, it's Isaiah 61. It's, it's God's word. We hold to that as truth. And then there's structural clarity. Our structure here provides a nimbleness. We want to be like an NFL linebacker, big and fluid, big and mobile. And our structure, which we created a new structure two years ago, when we are a pastor-led, governance oversight, congregation, family, all for Jesus. That's why tonight, that's why we're going to have a family meeting. We're going to discuss the master plan because you don't have a dictator called Scott. He said, that's what we're going to do. We do this together because we're a family, okay? Okay, thank you. Whew. Look at your neighbor and say, don't call the ambulance. I am alive, okay? So, <laughs> the last thing is relational integrity, that we're going to speak the best, believe the best, hope the best, and love everyone. We're going to accept everyone, but we're not going to tolerate sin. There's a big difference in there. We're going to be accepting I cannot stand the word tolerance. But you know what tolerance means? I'm going to kind of endure what you're doing even though I don't love you or care about you. Acceptance means I'm going to love you even though you do things that are not, I don't agree with. I'm still going to love you. I'm going to love you. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. I love you. I don't care if you're a socialist or a capitalist. I love you. I don't care if you're an Aggie or a Longhorn. I love you. Yeah. Or even a Red Raider or a Baylor Bear or whatever 
a horned frog or a <laughs> cougar, I don't know, whatever else we got around here in Texas, or a Florida State Seminole or a river bat from ACC. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. But we love each other. We accept each other, so we have relational integrity. And this church found in Acts 4, Acts 3, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 12, oh wait, Acts 29. What? Acts 29? Acts only has 28 chapters. Yeah, the Acts church is still happening. It's called us, Acts 29. That we are the movement of God. Why? Because God doesn't play games. And Ananias and Sapphira is a great example of how God does not play games. Let me read. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back a portion of some of the proceeds and brought it, only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why have you, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, it did not remain yours, and after it was sold, it was not, was it not at your disposal? And why is it you contrived in your heart you have not lied to, to man, but to God. Now, what Peter was saying, and I said, it was your property. You didn't have to give it all. You, you, but why would you lie about it? Why would you pretend like you were doing something that you weren't doing? What's going on? You didn't lie to me. You lied to God. You lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. What? Yeah, God killed him right there. Boom, dead. Ananias. I bet you people started listening to Peter preach a little closer after that one. Ooh, Peter's talking. We better listen. And he fell down dead. And a great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. He said, oh, yes, pastor. That's what we did. And I said, we, we, he, he and I, we prayed about it. We decided we're going to sell this land and give it all to Jesus. That's what we were doing. And she said, um, How have you agreed together to test the Holy Spirit? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. Wow. It's raining, y'all. That means I can preach a long time. I'm excited about that. You see, unity of this church in Acts 4 was disrupted by disunity of deception. These two pretending like they were something. Listen to me. The heart of disunity is pretending like you're something. Like your opinion is better. Your knowledge is better. Your insight is better. Your preference is better. And it's the heart of deception. Any attitude that causes disunity is sinful. So I need to learn to examine my heart. But also Ananias and Sapphira, not only were in disunity, they were hypocritical. Now, I heard someone recently say to me, well, I'd go to church, but it's full of hypocrites. I said, that's right. There's room for another one. Come on. Because <laughs> we're all broken, aren't we? And we all are struggle with Righteousness. John MacArthur said it this way in his his commentary. None is so ugly in God's sight than those who flaunt spiritual elitism. Who flaunt spiritual elitism. Look at me. Look how holy I am. 1 Corinthians 8, 
12, it says this. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul was talking about there eating the meat of idols. See, if you go eat the meat of idols, and even idols, not anything, you're just hungry, you just eat something. Some of your brothers watch it and goes, hey, he's worshiping an idol. So you shouldn't do that because you're going to offend your weaker brother. But I want to say to you that if you're offensive in disunity, Paul's saying, you're sinning straight up. You see, how you are perceived matters. Now, some of us say, well, I really don't care what you think. Really? I heard that recently in, our, in social media. I really don't care about the opinion of others. Really? Why are you on social media then? Why do you have 10 billion Instagram followers? Obviously, you care about what other people think. And the thing is, we need to be aware of who we are. And we should give a perception of the reality that we're living all for Jesus. We're not living all for ourselves. Hmm. You see, self-awareness is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the last one, is self-control, our self-awareness. Paul said this to Timothy. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a self-control, sound mind, that we may be self-aware. Paul said it this way in Romans 12, 3. For by grace is given to me, and I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, Romans 12, 3. In fact, if you want to look at a life lived all for Jesus, just look at Romans 12, the whole chapter. It's amazing, amazing. He's, Paul said this to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 6, 3. For anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Oh, I say it this way. An unexamined life is not worth living. If you don't take a chance to look at yourself and look at who you are, then what are you doing? We ought to examine our words. We ought to examine our actions. We ought to examine our motives. I'm not allowed to examine you. I'm allowed to love you and coach you, correct you, encourage you. But I can't examine you. That's the Lord's job. I need to examine me. And you know what? Before I start messing with you, I ought to mess with me first. What do y'all think? What do y'all think? Yeah. Huh. Now, some have questioned whether these two, Ananias and Sapphira, were actually believers. And I want to tell you they were. Why? Because in Scripture, they were named among the congregation. They were named a part of the church. And Ananias and Sapphira were part of the church. They came. So they were in the family. They were involved with the Holy Spirit. Peter said, why did you, uh, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? So if, if Ananias was an unbeliever, it wouldn't matter what he did. I'll talk more about that in a minute. And so far, it wouldn't matter what they did. But because they were involved with the Holy Spirit, they embarrassed God. The, the discipline of them was teaching to other believers. Huh. Now, I wrote this down. I want to read it to you. Satan can become personally involved with a believer. Satan can become personally involved with you. He cannot possess you. Because when the spirit of Jesus lives in you, Satan has no room for him. No room for him. But he can influence you. And he does. The more immature you are in the Lord, the more likely you are to be influenced. Maturity is never measured by knowledge of scripture 
our theology, our doctrine. Maturity is measured by the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Death can be a divine chastisement. I want to tell you, I've been really debating whether or not I'd even share this, and I didn't share it in the first service. I probably should have. This has been rolling in my heart. I have done the funeral of people that I'm convinced that God killed them because they were an embarrassment. I'd say it. I'd say, here's so-and-so. God killed him because they were stupid. I didn't say that. My mama warned me, Scott, don't be so stupid that God kills you because you're an embarrassment. I think that's probably good advice, don't y'all? But I do believe that that divine chastisement, don't let God kill you because you're an embarrassment. Now, notice the pattern of deception. I want you to see this. This is what happened. And this is, you need to pay attention because this is how Satan will deceive you. He uses the same pattern. Satan filled his heart, their hearts, to make themselves look more spiritual than they actually were. Say, hey, look at me. He filled their heart. And Ananias got his wife involved with it to sin with him. Your sin is contagious. It's contagious. A couple of years ago, I was preaching through Ephesians 5 about marriage. 521, it says, therefore, out of reverence to Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, says that in 21. And then in 22, it says, wives to your husbands. And then 24, it says, um, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church, he gave himself for her to present her holy and blameless. And you know what the Lord said to me? Hey, your sin, mess up Tara. You love her, don't you? Yes, sir, I do love her. How much you love her? I said, all my heart. He said, then quit sinning. You see, your selfishness, your ambition, your arrogance, your pride, your demanding your own way, your lust, it hurts your wife. It hurts your kids. It hurts your church. Stop it. Be holy as even I am holy. And my sins affect you. Am I sinless? No. My best days, I'm a raging dumpster fire. But God is full of grace and mercy, is he not? And he takes the extinguisher of the Holy Spirit, fueled by the fire extinguisher of grace, and he makes me to be the man that I'm supposed to be. All my hope is in Jesus. Thank God my yesterday's gone. Mm. You see, Satan loves to deceive you, to make you think you're better than you are. And you're really not. You're really not. It's called pride. Pride made the devil the devil. Ananias was not in Sapphire. They were not required to give all the money. They, they weren't at all. His problem, he was a hypocrite. His problem, he was playing church. When we were kids, there's four of us in our family, David, the oldest, Judy, the next, Stan. Stan's going to be with us next week. Y'all excited about that? Yeah, Stan to go be with us the next two weeks. It's going to be exciting. Stan, and then there was me. And we would play church. We'd play. David would preach. Judy would sing. Stan would uh, be a congregate, and I'd take up the offering. I always wanted to be the preacher, though. 
because I wanted to straighten out those three other heathens that we had. But we'd play church. We'd sing, we'd preach, we'd do those things. And God doesn't play church. Church is not a game we play. Church is not a gathering we attend. Church is a people we belong to and with for the global glory of God. This is serious business with God. And Ananias and Sapphira were playing. And God said, I don't play. I don't play. He conceived in his heart. And he lied to men, but his sin was against God. And so were ours. Our sin is a heart problem. And God doesn't waste his time disciplining unbelievers. Did you know that? If you don't, play, you don't, you don't believe in God, it's fine. Do what you want to do. But when you're a believer, when you belong to him, he will discipline you. Now, how can you tell the difference? How can you tell you've been disciplined by God? How can you tell, okay, this is discipline. God is disciplining me. Usually when you're doing something you're not supposed to do, you get caught, you get disciplined, right? That's kind of a first state. But here it is. Check your heart and check your motives. What's going on with you? What are you saying? What are you doing? Why are you saying it? Why are you doing it? Have you been convinced or influenced by somebody else to believe stuff that's not true? Check your heart and check your motives. Are you listening to people you should not be listening to? Check your heart and check your motives. Ask God to reveal himself to you through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Ask God to show you truth. He will. Any attitude that causes, uh, causes division or self-exaltation is not from God. It's not. So look at somebody who comes with an attitude that's divisive or is exalting themselves. You know that's not from God and that's not from, for you. So pay attention. Trials that we endure and discipline often feel the same. They feel the same. A trial is a circumstance that happens upon you. A discipline is something you did to deserve to get a whooping. They have the same result. That your character may be conformed to the image of Christ. So whether it's a trial that you're enduring through circumstances, listen, sometimes your sin creates a trial in me. And sometimes my sin creates a trial in you. And God wants to build my character. The mark of spiritual maturity is to recognize your sin and repent quickly. Or recognize a trial and learn quickly. Ask God to show you. Now, remember, we all have spiritual blind spots, don't we? That's why we need each other. That's why we best grow together in community. Brothers, if anyone is caught in, a tra- in any tra- transgression, you who are spiritual, restored him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. A person who is stirring up disunity is most likely not saved or is in danger of God's discipline, which could lead to death. When I was in seminary, um, I had a a professor who taught church administration, and he was telling a story about maintaining unity in the church, and he told the story as as if it were true, so I'm going to tell it to you as if it were true. And he was talking to us about unity in the church. He said, there's a church recently, a church in Tennessee. This was back in the, in the 80s when I was in seminary. Church in Tennessee that was struggling big time with disunity and division. And the church was on the verge of splitting. And God doesn't want a church to split, ever. And they were on the verge of splitting. So they had a prayer meeting. And they prayed together. And they asked God to reveal 
what was going on, and they asked God to remove any spirit of division or disunity among them. And they finished praying. They said amen, and their chairman of the deacons was dead. He had a heart attack and died during the prayer meeting. They had a revival then. Now, I listened to that as a young pastor, and I went, huh. I hope nobody, God kills nobody in my church. And the realization is that God is so serious about this, he's willing to take someone who's a believer, who's in great direct disobedience, and take them to glory rather than leave them to be a divisive spirit. Oh, by the way, we're having a business meeting tonight at 5. <laughs> hey, nobody coming. I'm coming at 6.30 for ice cream. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that interesting? You, know, you listen to this stuff, you go, okay, Y'all, there's worse things than dying. Did you know that? A lot of things worse than dying. Missing God, moving in your life, spending eternity in hell, that's worse than dying. And God moves in their lives. Hmm. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that they were hypocrites. I wrote this. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not that they held back money, but they lied to the Holy Spirit, to other believers, and created false impression and disunity. They concluded they concluded together, a convoluted together, to create a false impression that was repulsive and God killed them. Satan had a plan to derail the movement of God and God stopped it. We must be sober about our attitudes and our actions in the same regard. I have a church that I've been a part of, that I've been in my past, that God has literally closed their doors because of this sin and they are no more. No more. This is serious business. As I looked over my talk this morning and thought about what I would say to you in love and hopefully encouragement, which I feel like I'm not encouraging you at all. I hope you have been. If you're harboring resentment and bitterness or unforgiveness, you need to really be aware. You need to be aware. This is a sign of a spiritual illness or an immaturity that could lead to death death of your relationships, death of God moving in your heart, it, it will be corrected by God through his divine discipline. Why? As I told you in the beginning, God is so loving and good that he will not leave you alone. And he disciplines the ones he loves. Now church, I didn't want to preach this because I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to. Because I'd rather say, Jesus loves you, now go live better. Or I just want you to be happy. But I got to tell you the truth. And this is loving to tell you the truth. So here's what I have to say to you. Come home to Jesus. Come on. And we're going to love each other. We're going to believe the best by each other. We're going to give grace to one another. We're going to maintain unity through the body of peace. We're going to talk to one another. We're going to be the church. We're going to make a difference in this world. All for Jesus. And when we're experiencing divine discipline, we're going to repent quickly. We're going to learn greatly. And when we see a brother experiencing trials or discipline, we're going to, we're going to love them and we're going to help them. We're not going to judge people. We're not going to wag our fingers and say, told you so. We're not going to do that. We're going to be a family. We're going to body. Why? Because Jesus softly and tenderly is calling, calling for you and for me. Come home and live in unity and live in righteousness and live in peace. 
If you are not saved this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus, get yourself saved. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. His arms are open to you today. If you are saved, live it. Live all for Jesus.